Well, I've literally just written a joke in my head. This okay. has never been said out loud before. Okay. Um, what do you play vegetable snooker with? Uh, what do you play vegetable snooker with? Yeah. A cucumber. There's there's a side business in Christmas cracker jokes that I think you need to be investigating rather seriously if that's the caliber that you can come, come on with off the top of your head. I think I've made that up. I'm I'm not going to google it. We'll just say you have. Well done well, you. You at home can uh, can google can google that, <laughs> that particular joke. Hey up. I'm Joe Heathcote and this is consistently eccentric. A podcast where I will attempt to teach a friend of mine a lesson from British history. Focusing specifically on the lesser known and less believable people and events that the history books tend to leave out. So let's get started with... Right! (coughs) Sip of tea. And we get going with a story that begins in the Georgian era. Mm. 1786, specifically. Your three words for this particular episode... Can I guess one? Sugarcane. No. Oh. Battle. Yeah. Boots. Cold. Okay. Good. Yep. And you're fully prepped now. So, John Franklin was I've born... immediately forgotten them. <laughs> it's not going to affect your enjoyment of the I was disappointed story. that the, other, the last one wasn't didn't start with a B. Well... The, mm. Could you say them all again, but with Bs? Battle. Yeah. Boots. Brisk. I know. <laughs> I was hoping you'd go, battle. I forgot the second one. Boots. <laughs> I thought you were going to go, battle, boots, ball. <laughs> I'm sorry to disappoint you with the three words. Do you want me to get It's okay, but... <laughs> so, John Franklin was born in 1786. He was the ninth son out of 12 to a merchant. And we hope he was a successful one given the number of children he had to try and feed and clothe. He was born in Spilsbury, Lincolnshire. Mer- merchants, are, it's just selling. It's buying and selling. Yeah. Right, okay. So he would buy in things cheap, he'd sell them high. How's that work? Well, you buy in bulk, you get that bulk <laughs> discount, and then you sell in individual. So yeah, you skim, skim, skim off the top? Probably. Right. I mean, we don't really need to worry about Dad. So, anyway... It appears that his dad had a very narrow view of what an acceptable profession was for any of his children, as most of John's siblings became either lawyers, businessmen, following in the dad's footsteps, or members of the clergy. Indeed, John himself was pushed to pick one of these three professions, but he had other ideas. He was a free-thinking child. At the age of 12, John, no doubt after visiting the docks with his father at either Skeggy or Grimsby, because those are the two local docks. Drowned himself. <laughs> well, he announced to his dad, I want to be a sailor. <laughs> oh, sorry, he's 12, right? Yeah. Okay, I understand what, what you did there. No, he just it's always reported that John had a high-pitched voice throughout his life. Um, his dad didn't want him to go to sea, but he made a fatal error. See, I think people underestimate the amount of research you do. Yeah. So... Like many parents before him who have had young kids say they're going to leave home, he called his son's bluff. And he said, well, if you want to go to sea that badly, I'll go and talk to the captain right now. See what we can do. 
probably expecting John to go, oh, no, no, please don't. Please, please don't make me go, Father. John Franklin Enjoying was... Enjoying the voice yeah. a little less. John Franklin was not bluffing, and he happily agreed to go on a trial voyage with a merchant ship pretty much as soon as there was one available. So at the age of 12, he went on his first voyage on board a merchant ship as a seaman. Okay, what, what, what would a 12-year-old do? Not a lot. I just went, what would a 12-year-old do? <laughs> on a ship? What, yeah. I, I'm guessing whatever anyone else on the ship told them to do. I, I, you'd be the lowest of the low, wouldn't you? Like, scrub that. Why? Because I'm telling you to, you little chav. Come on. The experience, though, for John, he loved it, and it convinced him of his purpose in life. So at the age of 14, he enlisted in the Royal Navy. Oh, God. At the age of 14, he was allowed to enlist in the Royal Navy. And if you were looking for action and adventure on the high seas... I, 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 he wasn't a late bloomer, was he? Oh, God, no. John, John Franklin was very much a guy who wanted to live fast. It's one of those kids with a moustache at 10. Yeah, he, you need to change the voice for him now. Yeah. Well, now now he's now, now he's, he's now he's a soldier. Yeah. Yeah. He's in the Royal Navy. He's a he's an able seaman. So, if you're looking for adventure on the high seas, I am. Then 1800, the year 1800 was a good year to How join. How do I get there? The Napoleonic Wars were just three years away, and young John immediately saw action fighting. Like he knew. <laughs> uh, it's only three years away. Well, we know with hindsight, but John saw action immediately fighting. The Danish. Okay. <laughs> who had had the audacity to continue to trade with France even when Britain told them not to. So we there was there was um a group of countries who decided that they band together and use the power of sort of being in a block to continue trading with France because we were trying to stop all trade with France. Right. Trying to sort of you know starve them of resources and funds embargo yeah we were basically trying to embargo them so at the battle of copenhagen which was uh, a battle that was led by lord nelson who won a decisive victory in spite of the fact that he grounded a quarter of the ships prior to the engagement so they were sailing into copenhagen harbor to to sort of fight with the danish ships and a quarter of the ships that had been sent to do that grounded themselves on sandbars and couldn't take part in the battle um <laughs> oh no we're but, stuck <laughs> yeah but we still won oh, we still won the battle fight. oh right which i think goes to show how little the danish were expecting us to turn up at copenhagen harbor and engage in a naval battle with them and just how powerful the mm. british navy was yeah i mean we don't know what john did on the day but it was enough to see him promoted to an officer at the age of 15 yeah, he's a big dude, isn't he? Yeah, well, he's he's a very able seaman. Well, no, at this point, he's a midshipman, because that's the lowest class of officer, I learned, is a midshipman. Uh, he was midshipman on an exploratory tour to Australia under a man named Captain Matthew Flinders, who's interesting because Captain Flinders is credited with coining the word Australia. Right. So... Is, where's it come from? There was a longer term that was used, and Flinders probably was sick of using the longer term, so he sort of contracted it to Australia. So he was the first person to coin the, the term Australia. What would Australia. you guess the longer term was? I had it written down somewhere, but I don't know. Have a go. Oh, the United Island Nations of Australasia and the surrounding principalities. Something long-winded and stupid. And he shortened it to Australia. <laughs> like that. Uh, 
Unfortunately, the ship that they were using to uh, circumnavigate the Australian continent and to um, survey, you know, the the coastline uh, was found to be rotten and had to be scuppered in 1803 in Sydney, which, of course, made getting back a bit difficult. So the crew ended up having to just get passages on merchant ships piecemeal back to England and unfortunately... Is Australia not being colonised at this point? Yeah, there's right. a small colony. So the, the, they surveyed the rest of the coastline, basically, oh, right. uh, to see what, what else there was there. Now, luckily, John Franklin managed to get back to England quite quickly without incident, but Captain Flinders, he was um, caught by the French. And because the Napoleonic Wars had started in 1803, he, he had to sit out all of those wars based on the fact that he was, you know, a British naval captain and they didn't really want to send him home so that he could... Where did they, where did they keep him? France. Oh, he was just a prisoner of war? Yeah, he was just a prisoner right, okay. of war. Literally, as the war was starting, while he was on a merchant ship, just oh, trying to get home. Did he Did he finally get home? He did finally get home, yeah, what after his, the war had ended. What was his wife called? I don't know, but he died shortly after getting home, so I don't think the French treated him well. John Franklin, though, he got back to England. And he got stuck into the Napoleonic Wars. He moonlighted for a little while as an officer for the East India Company uh, to drive some French boats out of the South China Sea. And that was in 1804. But he was again able to get back to England quite quick because he was back in enough time to fight in the Battle of Trafalgar. He's everywhere, isn't he? Yeah. And he's only 16. Aboard a boat called the Bellerophon. But because that's a difficult word to say, it was better known as the Billy Ruffian. The Bellerophon. Yeah, Bellerophon. But I, I prefer Billy Ruffian, because that sounds good. Yeah. Scrappy. It's the kind of ship you want to be on, the Billy Ruffian. They're a bit coarse, but, you know, when the chips are down... It's the party boat. Yeah, they've got, you've got your back. And the Billy Ruffian was in the thick of the fighting. So thick that the gunners... Oh, it's so thick. The gunners, who, you know, man the guns, hence the term, were able to fight hand-to-hand with the gunners from the French ships that they were engaging. So they were so close up to each other that you could reach through the gun port with a sword and stab at the French through their gun port. But surely the, the ships are going to get all scuffed. Oh, the, the ships got absolutely totaled. They, they did not look good after this battle. Um, he survived the fighting, and the Billy Ruffian actually survived the fighting as well, despite taking heavy damage. Uh, and he was promoted to lieutenant so he's he's climbing that ladder quick because he would be what he he started out in eighteen hundred, and we're now in eighteen o four, and he's gone from being an able seaman to being a lieutenant. Seventeen. Seventeen. He's a lieutenant. He participated in the American War of eighteen twelve, where he was wounded at the Battle of Lake Boyne. 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 Uh, this proved to be his final battle at age twenty six. So. At the age of 26, he has uh, surveyed the entire Australian coast. He has fought in uh, multiple engagements and two wars, and he's 26. What have you done with your life? Yeah, that is no, a good I'm question. No, I'm telling you, you sat there listening to this. That's right. Yeah, feel bad. Playing Fortnite. Child. <laughs> <laughs> so, after a period of recuperation, because he, he'd been injured... Um, he was placed in command of the HMS Trent to support Arctic explorer and Scott, David Buchanan. I know that name. No, you know, Neil Buchanan. And also, it's not Buchanan, it's Buchan. <laughs> David Buchan. 
to investigate reports from whalers that the ice around Baffin Bay had disappeared, suggesting the possibility of an open polar sea. So they were going to explore if you could get to the North Pole by boat, because the hypothesis was that once you got through the ice, there was a sea in the middle the, of it. Yeah, at the very top of the world, an open sea. And they, they were sent by the British Navy to investigate this. Uh, the voyage, as you can imagine, was unsuccessful because there is no polar sea. Um, but it was clear that John Franklin had found a new passion in his life. Arctic exploration. That's what he wanted to do now. He's done with war. Now he wants to go and explore the, hos- the inhospitable north. <laughs> he's just a man, isn't he? He is. He's a man's man. The very next year, after returning from this doomed expedition, he's not going to be able to find a sea that doesn't exist, uh, he was chosen to lead an overland expedition from the Coppermine River in Canada to the Hudson Bay. So the Coppermine River's on the very top of the American sort of uh, continent. And it's about a thousand, two thousand to two thousand miles between that and the Hudson Bay. So he was supposed to sort of survey the land between the two bits. Um, twenty men set off in two canoes in July eighteen twenty to go down the copper mine and then to move across. Uh, the preparation for the journey had been a bit of a farce. Uh, they were undersupplied uh, with very very sketchy guides. And vague promises that the Yellowknife's First Nation, so the uh, native peoples of that area, might offer them support along the way. The main problem was... Why would they? There were two separate companies who were doing sort of like logging and uh, trading in skins in the area. One was the Hudson Bay Company. I can't remember the other one. But basically, both of those companies didn't want to help because they were fighting amongst themselves. And neither one wanted to waste resources on helping this expedition. So where they were expecting to be fully supplied with stuff and to be given food and provisions and places to stay along the route, they got bugger all. Things were so bad that Franklin had to suppress a mutiny before they got to the bottom of the river. So before they reached the coast, he suppressed a mutiny. Uh, they must... Mass- talking circles, isn't it? Yeah. They right, mass- okay. Right, stop. Let's, let's have a breather for a second. Right, I'm holding the talking stick. So that means I only... No, Phil. It means I can talk. When you get the stick, it's time for your time to share. Never give me the stick. <laughs> but yeah, they <laughs> they mapped 500 miles of coast. So they, they got there, however he managed to get them there, and they started up. So they've got to cover about 2,000 miles. They got 500 miles before they decided they had to turn back. Unfortunately, the canoes that they'd been using to sort of skim along the coast were wrecked. So they had to walk overland. And of the 20 men who started the return journey, only 11 survived. One man, one of the guides, a man by the name of Terra Hort, uh, he was responsible for most of the losses. So he'd walked off with three companions uh, at one point uh, and then returned alone. But he did have quite a quantity of meat. <laughs> Gold rings. <laughs> he was, he was oh, then... You're very bejeweled. What's his name? <laughs> Terra Hort. <laughs> well, thank you. He was then... Just found it in the forest. <laughs> he was then the only person around when another member of the party shot themselves. But as this was not a horror movie, the other members of the party made the wise decision to shoot him because he was obviously a mad cannibal. And they shot him in the head before he was able to pick anyone else off. The 11 starving... They, bur- they buried him with 
his four pe- pairs of trousers. <laughs> <laughs> his six wedding rings. Oh, he was a popular man. The 11 starving members who remained were saved at the last moment by members of the Yellowknife Nation who rightly spent the entire time that they were tending to their wounds and making sure they were okay calling them idiots for embarking on the expedition in the first place. But in England, Franklin was welcomed as a hero for his exploits. He was Be- no idiot. Yeah, he, was, he became known as, and this is the best title, the man who ate his own shoes. <laughs> that sounds like a Channel 5 Well, uh, things were getting so bad for meat that they were literally boiling their boot leather in order to make something that would give them any level of calorific intake. So... Wait, aren't they in the middle of a forest? Yeah. Well, no, they're, they're on the coast, the very, very north coast of the American continent. So it's, if it is forest, it's, you, you're getting... But you said there was them. loggers in the... the... No, the, the loggers were supposed to help them further up river, further into the continent. And then they'd take supplies, but they got the all of the companies there refused to help them. And they decided to go anyway with promises that this um, native peoples would help. And the native peoples basically said, well, no, there's, we can't hunt meat for you there because there is no meat because you're in the Arctic Circle, you effing morons. And they decided to go on anyway right. and then found much the surprise that the only meat that was available was long pig. Um, and only one of them apparently had a taste for it. So <laughs> that was that. You'd think after that, you know, that episode, his Arctic itch was well and truly scratched. But Franklin was so excited by the idea of returning for another go that he abandoned his dying wife in 1825 for a third visit to the Arctic. Wearing a pair of bacon flip-flops. <laughs> she, she actually died while he was on this trip. This trip was actually more successful and he was able to chart more of the coast around the mouth of the Mackenzie River before returning to England without the need to eat either other humans or shoe leather. So that's a big win. Yeah. Yeah. He's getting his eye in for Arctic exploring now. No one wants to hear his story. No, no, he he published um, his findings and they were well received amongst the uh, learned people of Royal Society. Right. Yes, of the Royal Society. For this feat of managing to get back without having to eat any of his clothes, he was made Sir John Franklin. And in a left field move, the government chose to send this now famous Arctic explorer to become the Lieutenant Governor of Demon's Land. Well, Van Diemen's land, now known as Tasmania. So they're sending him from the Arctic to Tasmania, right. just off the south coast of Australia. Now, the last governor, the person... What is Tasmania like? It's like a, a large island off the south coast of Australia. I understand that, but what's the climate? Close to Australian. Yeah, but it's Australia's... Hot. Right, so it's really hot, but like the middle of Australia is a... Yeah, a yeah, it's not, like, it's not like the Alice Springs right, okay. area, it's... It's warmer than it is in England, but not... Temperate? Yeah, it's it's towards the hotter end of temperate. So the last governor, the one that he was replacing, George Arthur, had been recalled due to his policies towards the native populations. That'd be a good review. If, mm. if we got towards the upper end of temperate. <laughs> Did you like the podcast? Well, it was temperate, but a good temperate. Yes. Mm. What's above temperate? Balmy. <laughs> so, George Arthur... He'd been recalled due to his policies towards the native populations uh, of Tasmania, which resulted in a conflict that was known as the Black War. 
George had pretty much made it legal for the colonists to kill any Aboriginal person that they suspected may be thinking about committing a crime. Uh, And by the time he left in 1836, the entire native population, which had been estimated to be about 9,000 people um, back before he started, uh, 30 years before, had been killed or forcibly removed to Flinders Island, which is an even smaller island between Tasmania and Australia. So he presided over a genocide. Uh, But he was not recalled to be punished for presiding over a genocide. No, he was being redeployed because he'd done such a good job, he was given the governorship governorship in Canada. But not before he was knighted, so he's made a serve for the genocide. Um, And also he'd become incredibly wealthy during his time in Tasmania. So he made a ton of money, committed genocide, uh, was given a better job and was knighted for it. This still goes on. Not we think this who not in the talking British about Empire. before who were you saying before? When we were chatting in the kitchen you were talking about that guy who's Oh failing grailing. Yeah. yeah. That's that's dating this. We don't want to get into failing grailing and the fact that he's still getting given jobs despite proving his ineptitude. So John Franklin himself only lasted six years in the post. He was attempting to do reforms and to make people a bit less murdery. Uh, and it did not go well, down well with the corrupt civil servants that he dismissed. So when he got there, he realised the fact that the place was completely, you know, lawless and that the civil servants who were supposed to be presiding over it were just out for themselves. Where is he now? He's in Tasmania. So he's replaced the genocidal maniac. Right. But unfortunately, all the structures in terms of governance that were in place to allow a genocide are still there. And as he started getting rid of those people, they were going back to London um, and were spreading rumours about how terrible he was at the job. His breath smells. Loads of personal attacks, I, I imagine, would happen. Yeah. Um, so although he... Yeah, he's club-footed. So although Franklin and his new wife, Jane, were able to establish a university, botanical gardens, and the Royal Society of Tasmania, which was the first royal society outside of the UK, so he's an innovator, he was recalled to England based on the strength of the accusations that were being made. Uh, and he returned disillusioned and despondent. He wasn't happy. He thought he'd been doing a good job. And he had. Yeah. But they listened to the haters. And they called him back and he was very sad. I saw him push a swan. (laughs) Oh, God. Poor man. (laughs) That's why he got the botanical gardens. So he could push swans. (laughs) Lady Franklin, very capable woman. Jane. Yeah, good old Jane. She watched him mope for a year and then decided her husband... (laughs) like that. (laughs) Well, she gave him time. Night and day. She's like, go to bed. He's moping. Wake up in the morning. (laughs) Still just there looking out the window. Another 300 days and I'm going to be sick of this. She decided he needed to restore his reputation by going back to what had made him famous in the first place. Eating shoes. Well, an Arctic expedition, definitely. She was like, you've got to get back on that horse. Come on. The public will fall in love with you again, John, if you just go up to the north and do some more surveying. Just come home with a few maps Everything will be forgotten. You'll be the toast of the town again. And this time he'd be going by boat. So he'd be going back to his naval routes as well. Uh, the Royal Navy were footing the bill. I forgot all about them. Yeah. We've come so far. Yeah. But 
he's back to his naval roots. Yeah, yeah. So they were footing the bill and they provided Franklin with two specially equipped ships, the Erebus and the Terror. Uh, nice name for a ship. They had steam engines, which were quite newfangled at this point, which would allow for a constant four knots so they could continue moving when there was not a breath of wind. And they were plated in iron to allow them to break through sea ice. So they were especially designed. They also had central heating, which is pretty sweet if you yeah. go into the Arctic. Come on. He wasn't the first choice. Three other captains had said no to this Arctic ex- expedition beforehand. So he was like, this is, this is fate. I'm getting given... Finally, I've got the equipment to to do this. So he was being sent to find the Northwest Passage. So there was a there was a belief that there would be a way to go around the north um, of the American continent through all the little islands that are up there and the sea ice and pop out from the Atlantic into the Pacific. So right. there was a Northwest Passage through that, and that if you could find a viable route to do that, because you'd be avoiding. Um, the other one was the Cape Horn, and all the storms there. If you could find a viable route, it would give you a massive advantage in terms of trade because you'd be able to get to the west coast of America quicker than any other route. What's the passage through um, the Americas? What's the passage through the Panama so- Canal? You think that's the one, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah. But this this was this was sort of like a fabled route. People have been searching for the Northwest Passage since the 1500s. So this is, oh, if he manages this, he's going to make his name. More so, he's going to go down in pretty legendary. sick. As the, he'd be sick of being known as the guy who ate his own shoes. Yeah, being the guy who found the Northwest Passage would be much better. Have you seen John and his passage? Uh, he was also provided with a crew of young and strong sailors, possibly to make up for the fact that he himself was 59 at this point. The um, wisdom. Hopefully, the wisdom, yeah. Uh, they even agreed to provide adequate supplies of tinned food, enough to last three years. So he's definitely not going to have to eat his boots. He's got he's got enough food. He's got young, able seamen. He's really hung up on that fact. Yeah, he's got... Never again. <laughs> he looks woefully out to sea. So on May 19th, 1845, the two ships with 134 crew set off from the Thames in London to great fanfare. There was probably a band, people waving hankies, as they do. Uh, there were a few hiccups early on. So they overshot their final staging post of Disco Island in Baffin Bay and had to backtrack, so they lost a little bit of time there. And Franklin also had to discharge five of the men at Disco Island. We don't know why. Oh, really? No. What Um, what do you believe it was for? Disco fever. (laughs) That's a joke. Uh, The two ships were seen in Lancaster Sound by a captain of a whaling ship on the 26th of July, 1845. You know someone's had enough at that point of that joke. <laughs> They've just gone, no, no. That's it. Someone has turned this, yes. this off forever. Yeah. You'll be wondering, like, a few months from now when this is released, you'll be wondering why you, you lost three followers. <laughs> <laughs> I stand by it. Yeah. Uh, so they were seen by the captain of this whaling ship. They seem to be making good, good time into the Lancaster Sound. They're going in the right direction. They're looking for the Northwest Passage then. Nothing for two years. Nothing. We hear nothing. We see nothing. Nobody knows anything. So in the summer of 1847, so this is two years afterwards, Lady Franklin, you know, she'd she'd wanted him to make a quick trip through. 
and be a hero again. She said, oh, I'm responsible. She demanded that the Admiralty sent a search party. And they responded that the ships had provisions for three years, so no need to panic. Yeah, it's only been two. Yeah, it's only been two. They still have a year's worth of supplies. They are fine. However, by the winter of 1847, and after what I imagine was constant pressure from Lady Franklin, because apparently she would write letters, she set herself up in an office in the Admiralty building to sort of run this propaganda campaign and to get the public on side to sending a rescue party. Just trying to alleviate her guilt. Well, possibly to alleviate her guilt, or possibly because she just it. really enjoys organising things. She organised her husband getting on this trip. She organised the botanical gardens. She, she organised the she's university. She's showing off how literate she is. Yeah. Um, yeah, they relented. The Navy just went, okay, fine. If it will shut you up, Lady Franklin, we will send a rescue party. So they sent a search party to Baffin Bay. They also announced a £20,000 reward for finding the expedition, which encouraged, by 1850, um, up to 16 ships to be searching the area around Baffin Bay, which is just at the very start of where you go for that Northwest Passage, um, for John Franklin and his crew. They found the graves of three crew members on Beachy Island, and weirdly, this seemed to give them hope that Franklin and his remaining crew were still alive somewhere. It seems counterintuitive to me, but... Imagine finding some graves. Mm. Three three graves. And obviously, you can imagine what the preservation was like in, you know, ice. Yeah. That these... I mean, the bodies that they found were so well preserved that they could check things like the BMI. Um, they could check the contents of the stomach, everything, so they could really look into it. We'll get into that in a little bit, but... <laughs> It was basically no, ice mummies. They weren't looking for the body mass index. No, no, no. <laughs> they were still finding people like this in the 80s. No, I understand that, but you're saying this the, in the 1800s, the BMI. No, no, but in future, when they found other members of the expedition, they were able to do these kinds of things. So they found three of them. Back in England, Lady Franklin was keeping the publicity machine going, and she was so effective in keeping the public interested in the fate of her husband she secured him a promotion in absentia to Rear Admiral in October 1852. Two years later, in 1854, a a Scottish explorer called John Ray reported that Inuit hunters had told him that both ships had become icebound and that the crew had died trying to walk out on foot, though not before they had resorted to cannibalism. Uh, Lady Franklin trashed these reports. She didn't want to believe it. Uh, in the press and was convincing enough that a further 25 searches would take place before 1900. In 1825? Yeah. So overall... How many of the people searching for them died? We'll get to that, but it's it's more than there were in the expedition. Oh my God. So in the act of trying to rescue them, uh, more people perished than if they'd just given them up for dead. That's trying to, you know, when you... Throwing good money after bad. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Gambling loss. (laughs) Um, So, in 1859, four more skeletons of crew were found, along with an account of the voyage up until April 5th, 1848. So, we finally get to know a bit of what happened. The account revealed that they had wintered at Beachy Island, where the first three bodies had been found, but had become stuck in ice off Williams Island in September 1846, and the ships were never able to move again. Because you'll get ice there, you'll get a permafrost that can last years. So they got stuck and they weren't getting out of it. 
um, the three years of food that they had been uh, given had unfortunately, as it was a government contract essentially, been packaged by the lowest bidder in order to save on the costs. Uh, and as a result, lots of the food spoiled because it wasn't packed properly. Also, um, all of the food was sealed with lead, which leached into the food. Also, the food did not provide essential nutrients. Now, they did give them... um the cardboard. Well, in order to fend off scurvy, they did give them lemon juice. Uh, and each of them had a certain amount of lemon juice that they were supposed to drink each day. But that started to ferment because it wasn't packaged properly. And in order to sort of make it palatable, they boiled it. And unfortunately, boiling the lemon juice took away the essential nutrients that they needed to fend off scurvy. So they all started to develop scurvy. Um, so the crew started developing scurvy. They began going mad from the lead poisoning uh, and they were slowly starving. It circles the hell of what <laughs> yeah. we could never understand. Um, because so many, much of the food had spoiled, they knew that probably no help was going to come in time because everyone thought they had three years worth of provisions. But they didn't because the amount that they lost in terms of spoilage, meant that they only had like a year and a half tops. I wonder how long before you realised that... You know when you're, you're tasting some spam in it, you got that lead taste. Mm. You're like... Three weeks in. Phil! <laughs> well, as an aside, they think that the spike in serial killers and violent crimes in America in the 70s, especially in the major sort of metropolitan centres, so like, um, you know, the Bay Area and that, was due to the fact that there were so many cars and there was leaded petrol that basically the entirety of the people living in the Bay Area were suffering from lead poisoning. And of course, you know, it, it brings um, impulsive behaviour, irrational thinking, mood swings, and that all of that, because they've noticed there's been a decrease in the amount of serial killings and mass killings that mirrors when um, unleaded petrol was introduced in various countries. So what you've got here are people getting sort of serial killer doses of lead while living in a claustrophobic, confined space. Yeah, within a a featureless white hellhole. So the situation's not good. And it was made worse because Franklin himself died on June the 11th, 1847, aged 61. By this time, another 23 men had also perished. So you're down to around 100 men left. But this does mean that he was made a rear admiral posthumously. Right. So, uh, so that's that's quite a, an achievement. To conti- he continued climbing the naval ladder even into death. Yeah, he's stretching it a bit far. He's a winner. It? He was reported by Inuits. They said it's that... rather handsome. The Inuits said that when they explored the abandoned um, ship, the Erebus, because it was just left at one point, they all decided to walk out that there was a body sitting at a desk in the cabin. It's never been verified, but according to the Inuits who were there, they say that John Franklin was left, sat at his desk in the boat forever. So he's forever commander of the Erebus. Um, Once he died, command of the mission was taken by Commander Crozer. And he made the decision to abandon the ships on the 22nd of April, 1848. By this point, the remaining crew were weak from malnutrition and scurvy and... Fancied a good walk. Well, 
there'd also been an outbreak of tuberculosis, which you can imagine it's was everywhere. lovely. It's always there. It's ever-present. Well, it's... I, I, I hate to get it, you know, to say it's... But they, they were going from inside the ship, which was being heated, you know, because it had central heat and something these hot confines out into the icy cold waste, in and out of that temperature change probably wasn't great. And the fact that they were all living in such close quarters, probably a hotbed for disease. So a lot of them had TB. Um... The 90 or so remaining men began walking south with a plan to reach the Great Fish River on the mainland of Canada. So they were going to literally walk back to the mainland in the hopes that they would be able to find some outpost, um, you know, some trading post or any of the Yellowknife First Nation, anyone who could help them. They dragged lifeboats with the rest of their supplies, the dwindling supplies, just in case the ice gave way. They needed a lifeboat because could you imagine if you'd walked, you know, 200 miles and then there was an expanse of water between this pile of ice and the next pile of ice that you just couldn't cross. So I they, just, I just they, whip off my shirt and swim yeah, it. They were forced to, to drag a lifeboat despite the fact they were malnourished. This resulted in them being able to cover approximately a mile and a half a day. I don't know how people worked that out, but... Um, they were covering a mile and a half of a massive journey per day with dwindling supplies, all of them half mad, all of them oh suffering from various things. So, so they were right. When, they, when they found them it's a death in the march. heap. Amazingly, 30 men did reach the mouth of the river, but they were exhausted. There was no game to hunt. There were no locals to offer the support. So they also died. But not before... They had resorted to cannibalism, um, and this was uh, confirmed l- later. And so John never ate anybody. No, John never ate anybody. Right. Uh, he, I, I mean, I find it amazing that they left him sat there. He's a sixty-one-year-old, well-fed commander. He's probably you know a good source of untainted meat. Sixty-one, um, Joe. Yeah, I know. It's like eating old mutton. So you know, they they did everything they could to try and make sure at least one person survived to tell the tale. But it, it wasn't for happening. As you pointed out... So how despite, do we know all this? Despite the 129 crew members all perishing, more people died in the attempt to find the crew than there were crew members to find. So there's that. So where do you get this tale from? Well, we get it from the messages. We get it from um, people later went and spoke to the local tribes because they found the camp where these people were. Uh, unfortunately, they were all dead, but they managed to find the camp. So it's just piecing it all together. Yeah, piecemeal over the years. The two ships, the Erebus and the Terror, still there. were finally found in 2014 and 2016, respectively, using modern surveying techniques. The Erebus, just off Williams Island... It's still frozen in the ice? No, it's now um, in a shallow... So it's, it's under the water, it's in a shallow under the water. And the Terror... They found in Terra Bay, which, if I'm being honest, probably would have been the first place I would have looked for it. Right. But, you know, it probably seemed too obvious to them. There is no confirmation that Sir John Franklin is indeed in the captain of the Erebus and his body has not been recovered to this day. So they managed to recover quite a few of the crew members' bodies over time, but never Sir John Franklin. The first successful sailing of the Northwest Passage would be completed by a Norwegian called Roald Amundsen. You were lucky with that name, weren't yeah. you? Yeah. Uh, in 1906. 
I would like to say that he was better prepared. But he had set off with a crew of only six men as he had to scarper quickly to avoid people he owed money to. It took him three years to complete and relied heavily on the support of the Inuits, but they eventually made it to the northeast coast of America and completed the Northwest Passage in order to claim credit for having completed this journey. He decided that he would ski from the ship, which he parked in a bay on the northeast coast of America, 800 kilometres south to a place called Eagle in Alaska, where he made his announcement, and then he turned round and skied 800 kilometres back to his boat so that he could get back on and, and sail down the coast. Wow. And he did that. And he did that. He managed that. Nobody cared. No, he was he was celebrated as a hero. He was the first person to do it. But unfortunately... I feel like back then, any stranger that walks into your um, village, your town, mm. it looks quite regal or confident. Yeah. You just cheer them. All this fanfare of people leaving. It's just like, he's ah! back! <laughs> Stranger! Unfortunately, as seems to be the case with most Arctic explorers, he will go back one too many times, and he would also, like Sir John Franklin, die in the Arctic, flying a rescue mission in a plane in 1928. Wow. And that is the story of the ill-fated Franklin expedition to find the Northwest Passage. But more importantly, it's the story of a man who lived to the age of 61, but did a lot of living in those years. More so than you feel you would normally fit into 61 years. That's amazing. So to, could... to go around the world that many times by boat. Hmm. <laughs> and to do all the things that he did. Yeah. What? It is, it is amazing that, you know, you could have such a varied career starting from you're just a random son of a merchant and you say, I want to I wanna go on a ship. Yeah. And you start off as like mop boy on the ship. And just because of the way that things were at the time, because of the amount of turnover, you're getting promoted so quick and just getting given these opportunities. Yeah. I doubt he woke up as a 12-year-old boy and he had this planned out that I'm going to be an Arctic explorer. It just kind of happened to him. Oh, bless him. So there you go. He just said yes to life. Yeah, he, he really did. And then a resounding yes to death. <laughs> As we all must do. Eventually. No, I'm, fight, I'm fighting it. <laughs> well, I, one of the things that the Inuits did say about the man that they saw in the cabin was that he was smiling. And that was the reason that they were very scared. There's also... Um, a belief that they need to it find... It looks like you're smiling, but that's what yeah. happens when you, yeah, it's your a lips rictus, fall off. It's a rictus grin sort of thing, but... It just looks like you're smiling. And a big toothy grin. There's only there's only one permanent settlement on Williams Island now. Um, and the people who live there are convinced that the island will remain cursed until they find all of the um, crew members and bury them properly. So um, they have been finding crew members, like I said, in the 80s, and they were able to test the hair and find that there were massive amounts of lead in the hair. So that's how we know that they were right. they were poisoned. And their body mass indexes were like down at 14 when, you know, 21 to 25 is where you want to be. So they, a lot of them had lost like a quarter of the body weight. They were so emaciated. The, you know, I mean, there were the telltale signs of things like TB because you can see that in preserved lungs. They were just in such a bad way. I like as the, they were marching. The only across. settlement that's Williamson Island. Yeah, 
they think it's cursed. It's like, this place is so inhospitable. It must be because of <laughs> the souls of these dead sailors. If we can just get them all. It will be sunny. Well, you never know. If if it coincides at the right time with global warming, they may be proved absolutely right. And I it could see. be just, they find the last one because the permafrost melts and they see a hand sticking up like, that's it, one, two, nine, we've got them all. And for the first time, they're able to farm the land. Yeah. They'll import some kangaroos, watch them majestically bouncing around Williams Island. It'd be great, you know. A, a, a unopened bottle of Sunny D floats mm. into view. Oh, beautiful! But there you go. <laughs> oh God, yeah. It's just how sad it was that, like, we need to have the vitamin C. We need to have this lemon water, but it's fermented. It's undrinkable. I know we'll boil it. And they just didn't have the understanding that that would remove all of the beneficial properties of it. And I, then I just, didn't have the understanding. Yeah, then they're just drinking I really thought they were sour get really water. Drunk. Yeah. yeah, they could have had lemon hooch. They would have been better off with the lemon hooch, to be honest, than they would have with what what they had. It's just... You just rub it on your skin like a salve. A salve. <laughs> salve. Potentially, I mean, I don't, can you absorb vitamins? see through the skin i know vitamin d is from sunlight which they were probably getting a lot of because you know arctic summers well let's try it out have you got a lemon no actually i did not have a lemon in the house i refuse (laughs) i keep no citrus fruit in the house (laughs) i will allow i will allow one clementine at christmas and that is it otherwise I, i don't believe in the stuff well, you've got to have... Um, Principles. Yeah. <laughs> of course you do. 